Amen. Once more, welcome everybody. Good to see you. Open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're in the middle of a sermon series entitled Letter to the Corinthians. If you're doing 10 with Tim with me daily on Facebook Live at 10 o'clock in the morning, we're going verse by verse through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we are uh, this morning in chapter 14, so turn with me. It's the first Sunday in August. Y'all know what today is? It's our anniversary, y'all. I've been your pastor 24 years. First Sunday in August is always my anniversary, so thank you for the privilege of letting me serve you. 24 years. You were all just children when I got here, and uh, and look at you now. Uh, it, It is amazing. Time goes by so quickly, but I am, of all men in the world, most honored uh, to be your pastor, so God bless you guys. Um, we are, just to remind you now, we're worshiping on Wednesday nights, no reservation needed, so glad you guys are here. We record Sunday mornings on Wednesday night, then Sunday mornings we do this very same service live at 11 o'clock a.m., still no reservations necessary. Last Sunday we did go into overflow, but we still had room, even with social distancing, we had plenty of room for everyone, so if you want to come, you just come on, we will make room for you. Sundays at 11 o'clock now in person, and then 6 o'clock p.m., worship on the lawn. Outside, it's easy. Uh, You can spread out. We can have all the people we want and just keep spreading out, and that's what we're doing. We really want to follow every possible guideline to keep everybody safe, but we want to worship the Lord, and that requires that we get together. We are the body of Christ, and that is what I'm talking about today from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So turn and let's talk about worship. One more thing, just for those of you who haven't heard, this is big news. Uh, Matt Betts has resigned as pastor at Journey Church. He and his family are moving to Sarasota, Florida, and they are leaving this coming weekend. So uh, Matt is uh, beloved by all of us. He's just one of my closest friends. If you love him, uh, reach out to him on social media. Let him know what he means to you. Uh, Journey Church uh, needs our prayers as they go through this transition. It's a strong church. It's a good church, and God has its future in his hands uh, in the same way that God will bless Matt and Dawn and the girls. So pray for them in that coming transition. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is is all about worship. Paul is giving instructions now to the church at Corinth when it comes to worship, and they need lots of help. The church at Corinth, worship has become absolutely chaotic. It's crazy, y'all. You wouldn't understand it. I don't know if you would like it. It's like a goat rodeo every time they get together. No kidding. There's division. There is drunkenness. And just utter chaos. So Paul, literally, in chapter 14, is going to try to bring some order, some structure to the chaos that is worship at Corinth. Now, the good thing about it is, as he gives him correction, he ends up giving us a lot of stuff that helps us too. So there's much for us to learn about worship just by reading what he says to the church at Corinth. But you know what? I can make an argument that nobody needs instructions in worship. I could make the argument that every single one of you knows exactly how to worship perfectly, and you do. You worship perfectly. I guarantee it. If we really want to understand your worship life, all we have to do is just pay attention to you, and we can learn about your worship life. We'd probably learn something about your life of worship by looking at your credit card statement, your checkbook. We could probably learn something by looking at your internet history. We'd learn something about your worship because worship has to do with highest devotion. 
Worship has to do with whatever it is in your life that takes top priority. Worship has to do with whatever it is in your life that you sacrifice for. What do you make sacrifices for? We can learn something about your life of worship probably by looking at your tattoos, something like that. You know what I'm saying? It is not a matter of of, of do you worship, and it's not a matter of do you know how to worship, because you do know how to worship. We are born to worship, created to worship. Nobody has to be taught how to worship. That's not the question. The question is, what or whom do you worship? That's the question. Whatever it is that you worship, I promise you, you worship perfectly. But as the people of God, we want to be worshiping Christ and Christ alone, and this is our trouble. Because like everything else in our life, sin has perverted, and sin has inverted our hearts for worship. So we end up giving top priority to something or someone that is not worthy. We end up making sacrifices in our lives for something or someone that is not worthy. Worship is about attributing worth, worthship. So whatever it is that you give ultimate worth to, that's your worship. Our problem is sin has perverted that in us. So we worship, and we worship well, and we worship passionately. Go to any UK basketball game and watch the worship. It's electric. However, even as believers, to get our worship focused on Christ and Christ alone, that is the challenge. It was the challenge at Corinth, and it is, I would say, the challenge at Woodburn and everywhere else. So there are absolutely instructions to help us. Now, the problems at Corinth aren't necessarily the problems at Woodburn. The problems at Corinth had to do with uh, two particular gifts, a little bit too much speaking in tongues and not quite enough of what Paul calls the gift of prophecy. So follow Paul's instructions, kind of follow him through. There are very, very important principles of worship throughout this chapter. Now I'm going to read the whole chapter, but I'm going to start in verse 1, chapter 14, and read through verse 19. So follow along with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we're talking about worship. Remember, chapter 14 follows chapter 13, which I read last Sunday, so we're going to pick up right there, verse 1. Let love be your highest goal. But you should also desire the spiritual gifts the Spirit gives, especially the gift to prophesy. For if you have the ability to speak in tongues, you'll be talking only to God since people won't be able to understand you. You'll be speaking by the power of the Spirit, but it will all be mysterious. But one who prophesies strengthens others, encourages them, and comforts them. Now, as I read, see if you can figure out what the gift of prophecy is. All right? Verse 4. A person who speaks in tongues is strengthened personally, but one who speaks a word of prophecy strengthens the entire church. I wish you could all speak in tongues, but even more... I wish you could all prophesy, for prophecy is greater than speaking in tongues unless someone interprets what you're saying so that the whole church will be strengthened. Dear brothers and sisters, if I should come to you speaking in an unknown language, how would that help you? But if I bring you a revelation of some special knowledge or prophecy or teaching, that will be helpful. 
Even lifeless instruments like the flute or the harp must play the notes clearly or no one will recognize the melody. And if the bugler doesn't sound a clear call, how will the soldiers know they're being called to battle? It's the same for you. If you speak to people in words they don't understand, how will they know what you're saying? You might as well be talking into empty space. There are many different languages in the world, and every language has meaning. But if I don't understand a language, I will be a foreigner to someone who speaks it, and the one who speaks it will be a foreigner to me. And the same is true for you. Since you're so eager to have the special abilities the Spirit gives, seek the ones that will strengthen the whole church. So anyone who speaks in tongues should pray also for the ability to interpret what's been said. For if I pray in tongues, my spirit is praying, but I don't understand what I'm saying. So what shall I do? I'll pray in the spirit, and I'll also pray in words I understand. I'll sing in the spirit, and I'll also sing in words I understand. For if you praise God only in the spirit, how can those who don't understand you praise God along with you? How can they join you in giving thanks when they don't understand what you're saying? You'll be giving thanks very well, but it won't strengthen the people who hear you. I thank God I speak in tongues more than any of you, but, but in a church meeting, I'd rather speak five intelligible words to help others than 10,000 words in an unknown language. Verse 26. Well, my brothers and sisters, let's summarize. When you meet together, one will sing. Another will teach, another will tell some special revelation God has given. One will speak in tongues and another will interpret what is said. But everything that is done must strengthen all of you. Y'all are thinking that's weird, aren't you? Y'all are thinking that's weird. Unless you come from a church or a background where people speak in tongues and prophesy, you're thinking all oh, that's weird. And you don't really know how any of that applies to us, because that doesn't sound like worship at Woodburn, let's be honest. And let's think about why not. What is worship? Especially in, in times like this, when most of the people who will participate in this worship service aren't in this room. Most of the people who will indeed hear this message are going to hear it through technology, and you may be listening to it a year from tonight. I have no idea. It's very strange times we live in, and this particular season really makes us rethink what worship is. I, I guess I appreciate the compliment, but I have people who will say, Pastor Tim, you know, I'm enjoying online worship. We're enjoying it, you know, because I can just sit right on my couch and hear your message. I, I, I think you're trying to compliment me, so I'm glad you're on your couch hearing this message. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm honored that you would do that. But is that worship? Or, or if it's worship, can that sustain a, a growing faith? Is that something that's going to sustain an actual life of discipleship? Because I'm telling you, that was a long chapter, and I didn't read the whole chapter. But Paul didn't one time, in talking about worship, Say that you're going to go to church, sit in a pew, and hear one guy with a big nose do all the talking. That's not at all how Paul thinks about worship. He doesn't say that you're going to sit kind of like you're at a show and watch professionals do all the singing. 
That's not at all what he describes. And, and what he describes, I would argue, I'm not sure you can even put online. I'm not sure you can even enjoy it if you're not there. Maybe in person is one of the only ways we can experience what it means to be in the body of Christ. Didn't Jesus say where two or three are gathered? There I will be in the midst of them? I think there's something about gathering. I think there's something about his presence. So what's worship? Where does it begin? What can we learn from this chapter? Well, it begins with the Spirit. When I was reading these verses, I wanted to just, I wanted to underline for you every time I said Spirit. Maybe you should do that when you read the passage on your own. Pay attention to all the references to the Holy Spirit and all of the action words that Paul puts with the Holy Spirit. Obviously for Paul, worship begins with the Spirit of God, the presence of the Spirit of God. One time when I, I, a redneck kid, y'all, grew up in Woodburn, and the uh, first or second Saturday night in August is always the Woodburn Ice Cream Supper. I think the first year ever that it's canceled is this year for coronavirus. So there you go. The world is falling apart. No Woodburn Ice Cream Supper. I, uh, I, lo- I grew up at the Ice Cream Supper. I loved it. It was a big deal for all of us, you know, heathen Woodburn kids. Um, the big deal for me when I was a kid was to ride the Duncan booth. They always needed somebody. I mean, the Duncan booth is fun, but somebody's got to get dunked, right? And as a kid, I thought that just looked amazing. For one thing, I can't throw. So I'm not going to have any fun on the other side of the Duncan booth. So I could sit up there in the seat. And it's blistering hot in Woodburn in August. And so I'm telling you, riding the Duncan booth, that's the job you want. It's the job I had. So that year, I got there early. I was all excited, y'all. I had my bathing suit, my swim trunks, I had a t-shirt on, and I took my seat up there and dangling my feet in that ice-cold water. It was awesome. The awesome part is the fact that you're in a cage. You're behind a fence. And so people are throwing balls right at you, but they can't hurt you. They can't hit you. Ordinarily, you throw a ball at me, I'm a sissy. You throw a ball at me, I will close my eyes. You know, like, like I can't catch because I can't keep my eyes open. But in the Duncan booth, I am invincible. And I was feeling it, you know. So you get these big, you know, Woodburn redneck, you know, athletes, you know, big old guys come in and they start throwing baseballs at me. And they can't hit nothing. And they can't dunk me. And I start feeling kind of confident, getting kind of mouthy. You know how it is? Because that's just fun, you know? You, you, you get mouthy. You know, so I start saying things like, you couldn't hit the big side of a barn. You know, just like yell stuff. And they get mad, and the madder they get, the worse they throw. And then I'll say something like, you throw like my grandma. And she's been dead five years. You know, just like that. I just get mouthy, and they get mad. And then they, they buy more, you know, and it's all going to a good cause, the Woodburn Fire Department, you know. So I'm just making money for the fire department with my mouth. Never been dunked. I mean, I feel undunkable at this point, invincible, getting mouthy, getting confident. There's this one guy, y'all, he really wanted me in the water. I didn't know this guy. He didn't know me. But he was developing a hatred of me, probably because I was screaming, is that all you got? Is that all you got? Every time he'd throw the ball. I mean, he was so mad. He never could dunk me. (laughs) Ha ha, never could dunk me. So what he did was he gave up. 
But he walked back, like back to where I was at the cage. And he looked up at me and he pointed that big fat redneck finger and he said, boy, when you come out of that cage, I'm going to bust you. I never thought about that. Like coming out of the cage, you know, and meeting these people. And this guy said, boy, I'm going to bust you. So my new plan is I'm going to stay in this Duncan booth, you know, until, until the lights are out and, and everybody's gone. Honestly, for me, for the rest of that ice cream supper, I, I just have one thing on my mind, and that is where is that guy? You know? And then when the fire chief came and said, hey, you need to get on out. Let's put somebody else up there. I'm like... You know, so now I'm out of the cage, but the rest of the night I was con- constantly aware of that dude's presence. I kept up with him. I could not ignore or forget that he was there. Thankfully, he forgot I was there. Now, if you've ever had a moment like that, if you understand what I'm describing, that, that, that even though no matter where I went, no matter who I was with, I was still somehow always aware of him. Because he was supposed to bust me, you know. In a backwards way, this is what I mean by being aware of the Spirit's presence. No matter where you are, no matter who you're with, if you're a believer, you should have this sort of constant awareness of the Spirit's presence. You're a believer, right? And you believe that God is always with you, and you believe that Christ is with you, before you, behind you, all around you, and you know that the Holy Spirit is with you. And so what I want you to understand is is that this is actually where worship begins. Worship begins when you become aware of the Spirit's presence. Now, without that awareness, you can't worship. I don't know what you're doing. But if it's not somehow in his presence and in a response to his presence and out of this awareness of his presence, I don't know what you're doing. At that point, you're just singing songs or just listening to a message. Or if you're at home right now, you're just stirring oatmeal while I talk. Because if you're not aware of his presence, if what you're doing isn't in response to his presence, then what you're doing is not worship. Worship begins with this awareness, becoming aware. And so when you come into this house or when you come into a moment of worship, even if it's private worship in the morning and you open your Bible to spend your time with the Lord, begin with with just take a breath and acknowledge his presence. Realize his presence. Thank him for his presence. Understand that he's there with you. It always, it always begins with this presence. Now, notice all of the action words. Let love be your highest goal, but you should also desire the gifts, the spiritual gifts that the Spirit gives. Understand, the Spirit gives. He's the source of our gifts. If you have the ability to speak in tongues, you'll be talking only to God since people won't be understand you. You'll be speaking by the power of the Spirit. You understand? Go back. Look at all of these references to the Spirit. He's the source of of the gifts. He's the source of our power. Honestly, it's the Spirit that activates our worship. For Paul, it's all about the Spirit. For Paul, your whole life as a believer is life in the Spirit. For Paul, what sets us apart from the world is that we are possessed by the Holy Spirit. It's that possession of the Spirit. It's that walking in the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. For Paul, our life is a spiritual life. 
and our worship is activated by the Spirit. We don't come in here and just, you know, beat a drum and sing some songs and get each other worked up into something. We're not supplying the energy here. It's the Holy Spirit. We're responding to the Spirit. He makes us come alive. And if you know the Lord and and if you love him, then you're going to love to worship him. He is your highest priority. He has your heart. And he is the one in whose presence your soul comes alive. That's why our worship is alive. But some of you are thinking, okay, if the Spirit is what makes our worship come alive, then how come lots of times at church it all feels so dead? I mean, can we just be honest? One of the challenges of preaching to people with masks on is I can no longer tell if y'all are asleep. I can barely see your eyes, but I become very, very capable of preaching right through your nap. I mean, so I can say sometimes worship is not alive. It's not. And you've been in those services, and maybe you have spent years in that church. So if it's the Holy Spirit that brings our worship to life, why is it so often that worship is so flat? so dead. What's wrong? Let me, uh, (laughs) uh, this is an actual letter, you all. Now, it's not a letter from somebody in this church. I would never do that to one of you, but I've been in ministry 24 years today, and I have a lot of pastor friends, and this is a real letter from a real church member to their pastor. Y'all ready for this? Dear pastor, You often stress attendance at worship as being very important for a Christian. But I think a person has a right to miss now and then. I think every person ought to be excused for the following reasons for the number of times indicated. Christmas, Sunday before or after. New Year's Eve or New Year's Day when they fall on Sunday. Easter, because we travel on holidays. July 4th, it's a national holiday. Labor Day weekend, need to get away. Memorial Day, I visit my hometown. School closing, kids need a break. School opens, kids need one last fling. Family reunions, mine and my wife's. Sleep late, Saturday night activities may end late. Deaths in family, anniversary, we like to get away together. Sickness, One per family member, a whole family excused. Business trips, unavoidable. Vacation, three weeks. Bad weather, ice, snow, rain, wait for it, clouds. (laughs) Y'all, this is real. Clouds. Ball games, unexpected company because you can't just walk out. Time changes, spring ahead, fall back. Specials on TV, Super Bowl, wait for it, and Survivor finale, <laughs> etc. That's real. I just love to know what y'all think. 
because by my, I don't do a lot of math in my head, but by my calculations, that leaves about two Sundays in the entire year that, Lord willing, we can count on this dude being here. Like two Sundays out of the year. It strikes me that if a person is looking for an excuse not to be in worship, any excuse will do. Clouds. The survivor finale. So if you want to talk about why worship is sometimes dead, when we've already established that it's the spirit that activates our worship, I think the only thing I can say there is that it doesn't matter how many people you put in a room. They're not going to experience spiritual worship if they're not spiritual people. You're not going to experience the Spirit if you're not spiritual. Now, some people who come to church literally don't have the Holy Spirit. They're literally not a Christian. Coming to church doesn't make you a Christian. Coming to church your whole life doesn't make you a Christian. And it doesn't mean the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. That takes something else. You have to want him. You have to want Jesus, and you have to open your heart to him, and you have to confess him as Savior and Lord, and you have to receive the Holy Spirit. You have to want that. So let's just be honest. If, if worship for you is flat, if worship for you is dead, if honestly you'd rather be home right now watching the Survivor finale or whatever it is, uh, America's Next Top Model, I don't even know what's on Wednesday nights at, at, at home, um, if that's where you'd rather be, you perhaps need to sort of check your heart. If, if in your life you've never felt the Spirit's presence, if for you worship isn't at all a spiritual experience, then I just wonder if you're a spiritual person. Because Paul assumes, even at the church at Corinth, I mean, these people are messed up, but Paul still has a basic assumption that, that, that they have the Holy Spirit. And that they've got spiritual gifts. Paul praises them for their spiritual gifts. Their spiritual gifts are really, really misguided and misused. But, but these are people of the Spirit. At least they've got that. So a couple of principles. Let's, let's just, I'll wrap up quickly. Number one, go after love and spiritual gifts. That's what the scripture says. Let love be your highest goal. Verse one, but also pursue the spiritual gifts. Pursue them, want them, go after them. Now, what is a spiritual gift? It's just what is it? Lots of us think a spiritual gift is just a talent, a talent. And so you're sitting there in the pew thinking or sitting there at home thinking, oh, I don't have a talent like that, and I can't sing, and I can't preach. And, and unfortunately, in churches like ours, we probably make too much of two gifts, speaking and singing. We make too much of them. I've already been talking too long. You understand? I think if Paul were here tonight, by this point, he would have already pushed me off this ledge. Because I'm not sure that this is the way he thought worship was supposed to go. I think he would look at all of you people and think you're way too inactive, way too passive. Worship is not passive. It's participatory. Paul says, listen, you need to make love your highest aim. That's relationships. And you need to pursue spiritual gifts. A spiritual gift is not a talent. 
It's not something that you do only when you're on stage at church, and we'll give you a microphone if you're really good, and if you're really good, we'll plug the microphone in. That's not how it works. It's, this, isn't, this isn't American Idol. It's not America's Got Talent. Woodburn's Got Talent. That's not what we're doing here. A spiritual gift is not like that. Think of it as a spiritual job. It's a job. It's a function in the body of Christ. It's just simply something that the Spirit makes you able to do that will meet the needs of others. It's always about others. It's not so much a gift for you like like Jesus just wanted to bless you, so he gave you the gift of song. That's not how it works. If, If he's giving a gift, it's most literally a gift for the church, but it's being passed through you. It's a gift for others. It's a gift for the church, and it's just flowing through you. We're not talking about talent necessarily. We're not even talking about always what you do at church. When Paul makes lists of spiritual gifts, and he never leaves us the same list twice, he just wants you to know that there's such a variety of gifts. And, and about half the time, the gifts that he lists are not necessarily something you would do at Sunday at church. So obviously, worship is more than just this hour. It's your whole way of life. It's a a life in the Spirit, a life of helping others, a life of serving. Now, there are two gifts that are really, really a big deal in the church at Corinth. The first one is speaking in tongues. I have been in church services where people speak in tongues. The first time it scared the life out of me. I didn't know what was happening. I was just sitting there, and we were praying, and I actually, I, I love the Lord, and I've always grown up in worship, and we were praying, and I was loving that, and this lady with this long, long skirt and the tallest stack of hair I'd ever seen in my whole life, she was praying, and all of a sudden, English words went into some other language, and I opened my eyes to see if something was wrong with me. Like, I couldn't figure it out, but she just started speaking this other language. It was, a, it was an unknown language. I, I, I couldn't understand. I, if it was a human language, I, I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. I'm not even sure it matters. It was tongue speaking. And in that church, in that tradition, that's something that they did. It is a genuine spiritual gift. It's not something that we have exercised very often at Woodburn, although it has happened And Paul says very, very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, you can't forbid it. Like you can't say, we don't do that in this place. Like Paul says very clearly, do not forbid speaking in tongues. So whether or not Baptists like it or not, we don't get to eliminate it from the life in the Spirit. Because the Spirit decides who gets what gift, and the Spirit decides what happens, you know, because this is the Spirit activating worship. So, so don't be afraid of it. Don't freak out. I, I survived that Pentecostal woman praying in tongues in front of me. I, I survived that. Now, if there was anything wrong with what that Pentecostal woman did, it's what I find here in this passage now, because Paul says what? If somebody speaks in tongues in church, that's okay. Don't forbid it, but it's got to be followed by what? Interpretation. Somebody's got to come back and tell me what she said, or that's out of order. Then it shouldn't have happened. And I'll have to say, in most circumstances when I have experienced tongue speaking, it was not accompanied with interpretation. And in that sense, that's a misuse of the gift, and that's what's happening in Corinth. That's what's happening a lot 
at Corinth. Corinth is so enthusiastic about tongue speaking, they want everybody to speak in tongues. And this is what Paul is spending chapters of this letter trying to correct. He's trying to say there's not one gift that everybody's supposed to have. We have a variety of gifts. We don't all speak in tongues. We don't all prophesy. But Paul says, if I could make a choice for you, I would want you all to prophesy. That's the other gift he talks so much about, prophecy. Now, when I say prophecy, some of you are thinking, you know, like, like Nostradamus, you know, like, like predicting the future, like an Old Testament prophet, you, you know, you, you talk about, you know, what's going to happen, you know, like at the second coming, and perhaps th- there can be prediction involved with New Testament prophecy, but it's really not the same as the function of the Old Testament prophet. For Paul, prophecy is just, it's a verbal witness. It's a verbal vocal witness in worship. A lot of pastors would say that preaching is exercising that gift. I'm not so sure, but I guess so. It's, it's a verbal witness. Sometimes it's a special word of revelation or, or knowledge. The Spirit inspires something that you wouldn't ordinarily know, but, but in this moment, it, it, it comes to you from the Spirit and you speak it. In some places in Scripture, there are sins actually called out and revealed by words of prophecy in the house. Paul talks about that in this chapter. When Paul's talking to Timothy, he talks about how a word of prophecy came out in one of the church gatherings, and it was revealed what Timothy's gifts were by a word of prophecy. So for Paul, prophecy is important because it can take a lot of forms But no matter what form it takes, it's verbal, and it's in the language that everybody knows. Paul says, I would rather speak five intelligible words than 10,000 words in a tongue that nobody understands. Because for Paul, worship has one purpose, one purpose, and that is building everybody up. It's got to strengthen everybody, whatever you do. You have to have a reasonable expectation that the people in church will understand it, and they're going to say amen to that. Amen to that. It builds them up. It strengthens them. That's what worship does. So go after love. Go after spiritual gifts. I don't think in the Bible there is a list of all the gifts. I'm pretty sure that in our day and age, the Spirit is is bestowing gifts on a new generation and gifts that Paul would have never imagined, but he'd celebrate them because it's the Spirit who's infinitely creative and always, always knows what the church needs. Go after love. Go after spiritual gifts. You need a job. You need something to do in the body of Christ that will be for the good of everybody else. You need a job. A spiritual gift is a spiritual job. So, last thing. Find your part and do your part. Is that easy? Find your part and do your part. Paul says, verse 26, Brothers and sisters, let's summarize. When you meet together, one will sing, another will teach, another will tell some special revelation God has given, one will speak in tongues, another will interpret what is said. Everything that is done must strengthen all of you. You see what I mean there? I love that. I miss that. I just miss the body of Christ getting together and ministering to one another. 
It is not about, and it should never be about, and let's not make it about you just come and hear a sermon. Because that's not what Paul says. He said, let, let one person teach, but don't let them hog up all the time because somebody's going to sing. And somebody's going to have a special word of revelation that wasn't even planned except by the Spirit. It ain't going to be in the bulletin. But the Spirit has it planned, and it's going to fall, and it's going to come out. And you got to make room for that. I mean, I miss that. I want that. But it's hard for us. For whatever reason, we don't have this very often. We need to work on that. One time uh, years ago, in college, uh, I was in a Christian band. <laughs> kind of. I mean, yeah, it was. Uh, me, and a, me and a buddy. And we went to do a concert at a Pentecostal church. So we had songs. I mean, we'd written songs. We practiced. We had equipment. Like, we knew what we were doing. We had a song list. And we put a lot into this preparation. But... Coming into that Pentecostal church, I realized there's a whole lot of Pentecostal women walking in with tambourines. And I was thinking to myself, mm, I never thought about a tambourine in that arrangement. As a matter of fact, we don't have a tambourine part in any song we do. And for a minute I'm thinking, I don't know if I want these crazy Pentecostal women jangling tambourines while I'm trying to sing. How's that going to go over? I mean, you know, like we have practiced... We got a band, they are not in the band, but they have voluntarily brought, you know, percussion instruments that they apparently are enthusiastic about playing. And I'm thinking, what if they drown us out? I mean, what if we get up there and all we hear is, you know, jangle, 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 jangle these crazy Pentecostal women with all that hair and tambourines? So we started the concert. You know what I found out? Crazy Pentecostal women with tambourines, they don't care. They don't care. They don't care. They just worship. They laughed and they cried and they just jangled those tambourines. They jangled them to the beat. They jangled them off the beat. They jangled them while I sang. They jangled them when I wasn't singing. They were responding to something, understand, that not everybody was actually hearing. They were worshiping the Lord and they were crazy about it. You know what else I found out? I found out I like worshiping with crazy Pentecostal women with tambourines. I like it. You know why I like it? Because they were participating. They were alive. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, they came into worship, and they came prepared to worship. They, they put some planning into it. They had no intention of walking in there and sitting in a seat and just listening to me sing. They fully expected that whatever was happening, they were a part of it. They found their part. They did their part. Crazy Pentecostal women. We need a few. Because honestly, it's been a long time in Woodburn Baptist Church since anybody got real crazy in worship. Back in the day, like in the early 1900s, uh, I think it was Margaret Ann's, was it Margaret Ann's grandma, Ms. Mitchell? She was a shouter and a runner. Y'all know what shouting is? You know what running is? Like, you know, the spirit just gets her and, she, you know, she's gone, you know. Man. 
It's been 100 years since anybody ran in here without somebody saying, hey, don't run in church. So that's Jack Wright's job. Hey, quit running in church. <laughs> the Spirit activates worship. And spiritual worship requires that, that, that you find your part, you participate, and, and you do your part. Of all things, the promise is that where two or three are gathered together, I'm not sure. I'm not saying it can't happen, but I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I guess I know the Spirit can work in a Zoom meeting. So, so, so yeah, I'll come into technology. You know, Grandpa's going to try. But, but I still think, I think together means together. I, I, I think even if you worship online, and some of you right now, we still want you to worship online. It's the smartest choice for you. But, but this isn't all of your worship. You, you've heard a sermon, but, but, but you've got to find your part and do your part. You, you've got to use your gift. You've got to find a way to get off the couch or out of the pew now, and you've got to go do something for somebody. You've got to see to it that, that you do your job to, to strengthen others, to strengthen everybody. It's not just about hearing a sermon. You've heard the sermon. Now it's time for you to go live a life of worship, an actual spiritual life in the Spirit. You have a spiritual job to do, and you should be running after love and, and spiritual gifts because this is just our way of life. And it's worship. I'm reading a lot of articles these days that, that, that talk about what church life's going to be like after the coronavirus is gone. And, uh, you know, the predictions aren't good. I'm hoping these aren't actual spiritual prophecies because I don't want to believe what I'm reading. But what I'm reading is that a lot of churches are about to discover that people aren't coming back. That, that they're not going to come back. I mean, four months is a long, long time. It's enough time to, to build a new habit. It's also enough time to break an old habit. And if church going was just a habit, for a lot of people it's broken. And they may not come back. I, I, I don't know exactly if, if that's true. But I just have this feeling that those of us who love Jesus and have the Spirit will find a way. I think we'll find a way. And even if some of us continue to worship online, we'll find a way. We'll find a way to strengthen one another, to, to use our gifts. Because none of us can do this by ourselves. The unity of the body of Christ is in the spirit, but, but it's in our gifts. We are united by our gifts. I have something you need. You have something I need. And that just means we, we need each other. I'm not saying you can't have a private devotion, and you should have a life of worship that's on your own, just you and Jesus, but, but that's not all of it. You can't do all of this alone. We have to do most of it together. Jesus says, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them.
that presence, that's where worship begins. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge your presence. You are here in this room where we are, and you are there in other rooms where others are who are joining me in this prayer. Lord Jesus, we know that you are in all these places in every heart where one of us have set you apart as Lord. You are with us. And Lord, we know that it pleases you to bring us together because we need each other. You have hidden something in the heart of my sister that I need and that I cannot live or grow without. And you've hidden something in the heart of my brother that I can't possibly live and grow without. And you've hidden something in me. You've hidden something in me that the body of Christ needs and can't necessarily grow and live without. This is, Lord, simply what you've done. It pleases you to unite us by giving us gifts, by giving us jobs that we can do to strengthen and encourage one another. Lord, the courage comes from you. The strength comes from you. The gifts come from you. But it pleases you to let these things flow through your people. That's why I need to be with your people, Lord. I need to know your people. Lord, in this time of distance and separation, we're just simply starving, Lord, for fellowship, starving, Lord, for connection, starving to know what it's like, to remember what it's like, to be in a room with voices united in praise, to fill a room with praise. Lord Jesus, we've forgotten what it's like to be touched, hugged, loved. We've forgotten what it is, Lord, to share our gifts in person. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would remove this scourge of this virus from our church, from our community, from our state, from our nation, from this world. Lord God, deliver us. Jesus, I pray that in the meantime, you would sustain your church by your spirit, Lord. You know what we're facing. You know where we are, and you know what time it is, and you know what we need. And Lord, what it is we need, your spirit will distribute amongst us all. So for us to have what we need, we will need to come together in the spirit and find it in our sisters and brothers. Oh, Lord Jesus, it seems so impossible in this present moment. But what is impossible for us is possible with you. Oh, God, stir your church. Even in this time of scattering and distance, Lord, stir your church. Let us experience a supernatural unity, a supernatural strengthening. Lord God, we are your body. We are your church. We long to worship you in the way that you are worthy. We long, Lord, to know what it is to worship you in spirit and in truth, together, help us, Lord. Help us to be the church together. Pray these things in the name of the Savior. Amen.